Today we have the opportunity to look at a passage in the book of 1 Corinthians, so you can open up to 1 Corinthians, and some of you know that we have uh, somewhat recently gone through the book of 1 Corinthians in the fellowship group that I teach, Grace Life Fellowship Group, and we spent almost three years uh, looking at this letter, and chapter after chapter after chapter of Paul's instruction to this ungodly church in Corinth. And by the time we got to chapter 16, the last chapter, I, I reflected back on the entire letter and I just considered the wide range of topics that Paul had to deal with as he addressed this church. And I remember thinking to myself, a fitting subtitle for the letter to 1 Corinthians would be Corinth, the Church of Immaturity. The Church of Immaturity. It was unrivaled in the New Testament uh, when it came to its spiritual underdevelopment. In fact, Paul refers to them as infants in Christ, chapter 3, verse 1. Basically referring to them as spiritual babies. So we're eventually going to look at a passage in chapter 16 as Paul narrows in on five key areas of immaturity, and he exhorts them to grow up, sort of like summarizing everything that he said in the letter so far. But before we get to that passage, by way of an introduction, I want to go back and just highlight some of the significant areas of immaturity in this church. And by so doing, we can, we can get a better understanding of the context in which the commands appear that we're going to look at. But also, we can see what some of the most common expressions of spiritual immaturity are as they come out in Corinth. So let's go back uh, and just begin in chapter 1. We obviously can't go over all the areas uh, because there are too many in Corinth to cover for one sermon. But I'm just going to highlight a few of them. Back in chapter 1, uh, we'll just look at uh, the f- one symptom of spiritual immaturity is insecurity. Insecurity. A lack of confidence that one has because they struggle to know their identity. They don't know how they have significance or worth. And I'm just calling that an insecurity. Notice chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, Cephas, and I of Christ. Now, you know the church in Corinth had developed factions as each little group identified with a particular leader. And you you might read verse 12 and say, well, where are you getting the idea of insecurity from? Well, we have to consider why they were doing this. Why were they vulnerable to developing these these little personality cults in the church? Well, he expands a little more on the problem in chapter 3, verse 3. So glance there. Glance over there. Chapter 3, verse 3. For you are still fleshly, I'll notice this. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? So now jealousy is introduced into the equation. Jealousy, what is that? It's an intolerance of rivalry in one's life. Jealousy is at work when one must be viewed as equal or superior to to someone else. And so what the Corinthians were doing is they were attaching themselves to a particular leader, identifying with him, and vicariously sharing in his giftedness, his ministry, his influence, his success. 
and the slam dunk of how this was feeding their personal significance or the fact that it was is later on in chapter 3. Notice verse 21. Notice how Paul shepherds them with regard to this. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. That is an interesting connection he makes there. Let no one boast in men. So when they were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, the Apostle Paul is saying, that's boasting in men. Well, why? Well, notice what he says. For all things belong to you. So what's he saying there? Why do you try to find your significance in attaching yourself to this ministry person? Why are you trying to find your identity in being a follower of Paul or Apollos for all things belong to you? In Christ, you have everything. In Christ, you inherit everything Christ inherits. Why would you settle for such a cheap substitute as finding your significance in man? And that's the principle we're highlighting. Spiritual immaturity can show up in being insecure, trying to manufacture a significance in people's uh, acceptance of me, in identifying with a certain group or certain person. And why is that spiritual, spiritual immaturity? Well, what's spiritual maturity? My identity is Christ. I'm righteous in Him. He's my significance. He's my worth. It's all about Christ. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter if they criticize me or praise me. My identity is in Christ. I'm righteous in Him. That's spiritual maturity. Another symptom. Let's move on here to a second symptom of spiritual immaturity in Corinth. Stunted spiritual growth. I guess you would assume that if we're talking about spiritual immaturity. Stunted spiritual growth. Look at uh, right here. Stay in chapter 3. And notice verse 1. And I, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Okay, so your growth is stunted. Verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. He's highlighting an inability on their part to grow in knowledge and discernment. Why? Why is that there? Why aren't they profiting from spiritual nourishment? Middle of verse 2. Indeed, even now. So not only when you were brand new believers, but even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? So Paul says you have a prolonged, culpable spiritual infanthood. Because your heart is being ruled by the flesh instead of the spirit. You know, considering this principle today, why is it that two individuals can sit under the same ministry and the same sermons and the same groups and read the same books and the same Christian friends and have the same influences? One of them's consistently growing in godliness and knowledge and discernment. One of the other one is just stuck in the same spiritual condition, but they're exposed to all the exact same truth. And influence. Well, the answer is right here. The, the, the flesh is ruling in the heart of one. The, the worldly desires, fleshly desires is crowding out any appetite for the truth and preventing them from growing. It's like a person who knows they, something's wrong with their body and they need to clean up their diet. So they start eating pure, clean diet full of vitamins and minerals, but their body won't absorb the nutrients because they won't get rid of that smoking habit. 
That's what the Corinthians are doing spiritually. Well, another symptom of immaturity. Again, stay right here in chapter 3. We've already seen it. The absence of peace and harmony in relationships. So fleshly conflict in relationships. Chapter 3, verse 3. Jealousy and strife toward one another. When one is unable to cultivate godly relationships, that is a sign of spiritual immaturity. And sure, they can get along just fine with people who are like them, but many of their other relationships are characterized by things like this, strife, friction, resentment, bitterness. When the passions of one's heart are ruling instead of the Spirit, there's going to be the immaturity of rotten fruit in relationships. This next one, look at chapter 4, verse 6. This is an ironic one. Another symptom of spiritual immaturity is an overestimation of one's maturity. Chapter 4, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that, not, so that uh, no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? Now, why is he saying that to them? Because they did. They regarded themselves as superior. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you'd not received it? And now he speaks to them with what I like to call apostolic sarcasm. Verse 8. You're already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we are without honor. See what he's doing there? Corinthians, can we come up to where you're at spiritually, we the apostles? You mind if we come up? to the top level of spirituality where you are and hang out with you up there. The irony of this is that mature, godly people would never think of themselves as mature and godly people. The very fact that the Corinthians thought this way is evidence of their immaturity. I think about the times in, in counseling where I'm sitting across from someone and, and I'm warning them about a decision or a path they're thinking of going down and they're not ready to hear it and they start to push back and they, they say, it's okay, you don't have to be concerned about me, Pastor. I can handle it. I can handle it. And as soon as I hear those words, I, I think of the Corinthians and what Paul said right here. Well, I must be a fool. You're the wise one. I'm the weak one. You're the strong one. I wouldn't put myself, myself in that situation, but you can. You're stronger. Proverbs 16:18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling that is the overestimation of one's maturity even going so far to believe I've got my sin under control I can manage it it's no big deal Well another symptom of spiritual immaturity in Corinth when one is more concerned about personal rights than being righteous more concerned about what's fair than being faithful chapter 6 the context here in chapter 6 is individuals in the church going to court against one another in civil matters. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, 
but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Notice this in verse 7. Actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. No matter who wins, no matter what the settlement is, no matter what the verdict is, the fact that you're in a lawsuit, you're both defeated. You already lost. Why? Because your heavenly priorities have been eclipsed by your earthly pursuits, your earthly desires. Verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Wow. Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. This is speaking to the immaturity of how one's earthly reputation, their earthly rights are the priority in life. Those things must be protected at all costs with the spiritual implications coming far down the road. Well, what a foreign mindset to the Scriptures to think of my rights. I have to make sure I get what's fair and get what's owed to me. We don't have to think too far back in history to think of a time when this kind of immaturity was on full display in evangelicalism. Just a couple of years ago during the COVID crisis and we had all those fun lockdowns and mask mandates. And it became readily apparent that many believers were far more passionate about their rights being violated than conducting themselves in a righteous manner. That is a sign of spiritual immaturity to think of a citizen of the earth first and a citizen of, citizen of heaven second. Another symptom of spiritual immaturity, baptizing sin in the name of Christian freedom. The Corinthians were great at that. Baptizing sin in the name of Christian freedom. Chapter 6, verse 12, they had a slogan, the Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. And this became the cloak, the veil, in which they hypocritically pursued their sinful lusts. Very common in the church today. There's no chapter and verse that says I can't do something. That's a license to do it. I automatically have a right and freedom to do it, and I should do it. If anyone gets around them and starts saying that might not be a wise choice, that might be foolish, they respond with, well, you're a legalist because God says I, God didn't give me any rule that says I can't do it. That's immaturity. Why? It is a reckless, recklessly navigating the areas of Christian freedom. Let's skip ahead to chapter 10 and look at another symptom of spiritual immaturity. This is confusing spiritual privileges with salvation. Confusing spiritual privileges with spiritual maturity. Paul gives the church in Corinth a prime example of the nation of Israel to show them how spiritual privileges, spiritual experience, knowledge, it doesn't equate to salvation or maturity. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. What's the point there? All of Israel had remarkable exposure to the truth. They had amazing spiritual experiences. They had more spiritual knowledge than any other nation. But with most of them, the vast majority of them, God judged them. He was not pleased. 
This is what the spiritually immature tend to confuse. They will put significance in spiritual obligations, and they will confuse those things with fruit of the Spirit or evidences of salvation. What do, I, what do I mean by that? I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I give, therefore I'm mature, therefore I'm a, I'm a Christian. So it'll take the obligations that we have as believers and equate them to maturity or salvation. That's a sign of immaturity. One final symptom, again, we could look at so many more, but we'll look at one more here. Final symptom of spiritual immaturity in Corinth, the loveless exercise of spiritual gifts. That's an easy one to highlight. It's three whole chapters, chapters 12 to 14. One of the primary problems in Corinth, the loveless exercise of spiritual gifts. What does that look like practically? A a spiritual immaturity when it comes to spiritual gifts. Well, we can be self-promoting, self-exalting. That was the problem in Corinth. Uh, using their spiritual gift to draw attention to themselves, to say, look at how spiritual I am. We can be self-preserving in spiritual gifts. I'm not going to serve because I don't want anyone to see my weaknesses. I'm too afraid to fail or mess something up. We could be self-loving with our spiritual gifts. I love my comfort, my own time, or I'm not going to die to myself to serve the church, so a self-love. We could be self-pitying, I've got nothing to offer. Everyone else has a talent but me, so I'm not going to serve. Whatever the reason, this is a symptom of spiritual immaturity, a loveless exercise or failure to exercise one's spiritual gift. Now, that's a snapshot. That's all introduction. Snapshot of the immaturities which plagued the church in Corinth. Let's skip ahead now to chapter 16. After Paul has rebuked, exhorted, instructed them in all of these matters, he gives some parting commands, some concluding commands. Beginning in verse 13, notice, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now, a few interesting things about verses 13 and 14 here. First, Paul doesn't elaborate on any of these commands. He doesn't develop them. Furthermore, they don't appear to have any close connection, at least grammatically speaking, to what comes before or after. And so based on this, I think we can conclude that Paul's saying, let me summarize everything that I've said so far. Let me just give you five departing commands to summarize all of my instruction and exhortation up until this point. And so that's how we're going to outline this. Five commands exhorting the church to grow up into maturity. Five commands exhorting the church to grow up into maturity. The first command is there at the beginning of verse 13. Be on the alert. So we'll call this one, be attentive in sanctification. Be attentive, be active. Actively engaged in sanctification. So this is speaking to the spiritual immaturity of uh, sluggishness. Spiritual laziness. And Paul is calling the church to wake up and become alert. Same thing Jesus said to his disciples, same word, Mark 14, 38. Keep watching, keep being alert and praying so that you don't fall into temptation, he said to his disciples. So the idea is remaining spiritually alert keeps one from entering the realm 
of temptation. A very fitting command to give to the Corinthian church because based on the issues they were struggling with and failing in, it is clear that they were all but being alert in their sanctification. They were living in a state of spiritual apathy, sluggishly going through the motions of the Christian life and getting dominated by the flesh. And so Paul calls the church here, make a determined effort at spiritual wakefulness, spiritual attentiveness. The question is how? What does that look like practically? Because Paul doesn't elaborate on it. He doesn't expand on it here. This is just a concluding command. So we're actually going to go over to Romans 13 just to see an example of practically what this would look like. Romans 13, 14. It's a good example of what it would look like or what it means to be watchful and be alert in sanctification. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that referring to? Become in practice what you are in position, Christian. What are you in position? Righteous in Christ. Now become in practice. Put on righteous thoughts, righteous behavior. But it's the second part that I really want to focus on here. And make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Make no provision. You know, every time we sin, every time we fall prey to temptation, we are making provision for the flesh in regard to its desires. So what does that mean? Make no provision. Provision is a, is a compound word. It would be like taking two English words, uh, think before, and putting them together. So we have forethought. Forethought. How do we use the word forethought? Well, it's how we describe for the future. We, give, we plan ahead. We think ahead. We anticipate uh, a trip, and then we plan accordingly. We give forethought to it. That's the idea here. Make no forethought for the flesh in regard to its desires. So any thought that could lead to a sinful action, a sinful tendency, any, any thought, we are to immediately take that captive and make it obedient to Christ Jesus. Make no accommodations in your thinking for fleshly lies. That's what it means to be spiritually alert. I was reading something this week, and the author referenced a Puritan, <clears throat> excuse me, a Puritan writer named Thomas Manton, and he made this statement Every corruption has a voice. Every corruption has a voice. And the idea is every form of ungodliness begins with a thought, a lie that is against God. It's against his, his will. And being alert then means we're, we're able to identify that voice. We're able to identify that thought leading to that thought. And then that would lead to that thought. And that's the pathway of temptation unto sin. And our ability to do this presupposes a few things. How are we going to be able to make no provision for the flesh? Well, it presupposes we have sufficient exposure to the truth. Right? That we are continually renewing our minds with the truth. Romans 12, verse 2. We can't identify the lies of the flesh, the lies of the world, the lies of the evil one, if we don't know what the truth is. So it has to, we have to be exposed to the truth. Secondly, it presupposes that our minds are hospitable to the truth. We can be exposed to it all we want, but if it, we're not allowing it to entry into our heart and our thinking, it doesn't matter how much we're exposed to it. So our minds must be hospitable to the truth. What does that mean? We're developing convictions. 
We're allowing the truth to shine that spotlight into our hearts, into those areas that we try to protect and are costly. Not merely growing in our awareness of what the Scriptures say, not merely growing in our appreciation for the Scriptures, but developing convictions, deep convictions. So back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 16, this first concluding command to the church is to be attentive, be actively engaged in sanctification. That brings us to a second command exhorting the church to grow up into maturity. This is the middle of verse 13. Stand firm in the faith. So we'll call this one be anchored in the truth. Be anchored in the truth. The language here of standing firm in the faith, this is not talking about your personal faith in the Lord. This is talking about what you believe, the content of your faith, doctrine. And I love this language, standing firm, because it really emphasizes we have to go beyond merely drawing conclusions about what the Scriptures say. Rather, we have, to, we have to cultivate firm convictions to be completely convinced, fully persuaded of the truth so that we'll take our stand and won't compromise. I want to take a minute and consider that difference. What's the difference between a shallow conclusion and a deep conviction? Because both of them would say, that's what the Word of God says. I've concluded that's what the Word of God says. So what's the difference between those two. Here's the difference practically. A conclusion is one in which you'll compromise if the circumstances are right. A conviction is something you'll die for. You'll take your stand. You're not going to budge on it no matter what happens. How do you develop convictions as opposed to shallow conclusions? Well, just to keep it simple, I'll, I'll, I'll say there are three ingredients of a biblical conviction. Knowledge of the truth, belief of the truth, and truth applied over time. Knowledge, belief, application over time. Pastor and author Paul Shirley, in an article on this very concept, he, he talks about how, how you develop these deep convictions. He writes, when you're exposed to God's word, your heart is increasingly persuaded by its precepts as your mind understands its meaning, but this takes time which is essential in order to develop lasting convictions. It takes time to understand the truth, to grapple with its meaning, to see the implications for your life, and it takes time to see the truth proven over and over again in your daily life. And then he ends with this. You can come to a conclusion almost instantaneously, but convictions take time in order to be meaningful. So when it comes to the content of your faith, Do you have meaningful convictions or just shallow conclusions? Ask yourself, how deep do my convictions go? If you were to picture your your convictions, your, your doctrinal convictions as a boat, everyone's boat is going to be stable and steady. It'll stay in one place until the wind picks up and the waves start crashing in. And then what happens? Shallow convictions, the boat will just be carried along with the wind. Circumstances will cause you to compromise and change. If you have a meaningful convictions, the boat, it'll be stable and steady, just like the first example. But when the wind picks up, when the waves come, it's going to stay right there. Why? It's anchored. It's anchored to the bottom. The convictions go deep. And we can evaluate ourselves in a couple of ways with this. 
First, how broad are my convictions? How broad? And then secondly, how deep do they go? How broad are they? And how deep are they? Now, when I, when I say broad, I don't mean open and liberal. I, I mean few convictions versus many about what the scriptures teach. What I mean by that is some have very few convictions, very few areas in which they would stand firm. And it's typically the most basic and fundamental doctrines of the Christian life that even the most, the most brand new believer would hold. The Bible's God's word. Jesus is the son of God. He died and rose on the third day. Those are my convictions. That's as far as it goes. That, that's the breadth of their convictions. Yet they've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years. And those are the convictions. That's as broad as they go. The question is, why hasn't there been a maturity beyond that? Why haven't your convictions broadened out beyond those entry-level beliefs of the Christian faith? We're not going to turn there, but Hebrews 5, verse 11 and following, you can read the author of Hebrews rebuking his audience for this very thing, their doctrinal infancy and their doctrinal stagnancy. How broad are your convictions? How long have you been a Christian? And do you know what you believe about spiritual gifts like tongues, prophesying? Do you still view every eschatological position as equally valid? Are you convinced one way or the other about whether infants should be baptized? Who should be baptized and why? Have you drawn a conclusion about whether the church is the new Israel? Church and Israel separate or are they the same? The point is, one's conviction should be ever broadening out if we're interacting with the Scriptures in a profitable way, developing these convictions. Now, let's speak to the other type of immaturity. Some may have a breadth of so-called convictions. They may have that ever-expanding list of things. Yeah, I believe. I'm convinced of those doctrines, everything. And it's wide, but they don't go very deep. They're not very deep. Because they could be in an environment like ours and they could sign off on a statement of faith and say, yeah, I believe all those things. Amen. And they're passionate about it. But then they get a job opportunity and they move away and they go to a church and it's got a completely different doctrinal statement. Right? What happened? How did your doctrine change that quickly? Because you have a breadth of convictions, but they don't go deep. They're not really things that you're immovable on. I think the point is here, we don't have the option to be guilty of either of those. Paul says, stand firm, stand firm in the faith. Be developing deep convictions and not shallow conclusions that will be jettisoned if the circumstances are right. A third command in verse 13, exhorting the church to grow up into maturity. Act like men, Paul says. Act like men. We'll call this one, be adult-like in your character. Be adult-like in your character. Now, I'm making it general like that, be adult-like and not be male-like, because although this is a summary verse of our men's group, and appropriately so, we put this on the back of our t-shirts, it's not limited to men, because Paul's speaking to the church here, male and female. So its applicability can't be limited to just the men of the church. This is being used to contrast immaturity with maturity. For instance, look over at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. You can see how Paul does this. 
1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became, and he could say an adult, but he doesn't. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So he's not contrasting male, female. He's contrasting child and adult. Same idea back in chapter 16, verse 13. The command is act like spiritual adults. Act adult-like in your character. If you have young children in the home and you evaluate their weaknesses, their vulnerabilities, their tendencies, it is remarkable how many of those things translate well over into spiritual infanthood. Let me just highlight a few things on what's true of children in my home and probably true of your young children as well. Vulnerable to danger because they're naive or ignorant. Struggle to have self-control over their speech and emotions. They don't create structure or discipline themselves. They need their hand held for every activity. You're going to do this for the next 30 minutes, then you're going to do this, and here's your activity. They have to have structure provided for them. They get overwhelmed easily. They struggle denying themselves their immediate fleshly impulses, whether it be for food, their favorite toy, whatever it might be. They, are, they easily succumb to envy, jealousy, fleshly conflict with siblings and others. And they think almost exclusively in terms of me. They are unapologetically self-centered and aren't sophisticated as adults to cover it up like we can. Right? Now think about that. It translates right over to spiritual infanthood, spiritual maturity. Spiritual children, vulnerable to doctrinal danger. Because they're naive, they're ignorant, they have no discernment, they're tossed to and fro, Ephesians 4.14. Spiritual children struggle to have self-control over their speech and emotions. Spiritual children get overwhelmed easily, don't know how to deal with anxious thoughts and pressures in life. Spiritual children give in to the flesh. They, they, they are characterized by immediate gratification of desires. Spiritual children are bad at relationships, prone to conflict and jealousy. And spiritual children are self-centered, self-absorbed. So Paul, Paul just takes that theme and tells the church in Corinth, it's time to grow up. Act like adults. How do we do that? Well, really this whole passage is telling us how to do that. But one of the things, one prerequisite is what? You have to own the immaturity. You have to recognize the level of immaturity. Look back at chapter 3, verse 18. I'll show you how Paul, Paul goes at their wrong assessment of themselves. It, it is the pride of thinking I'm already mature that keeps one from growing up. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he's wise in this age, he must become foolish that he may become wise. There's the wrong assessment. I think I'm wise. I have wisdom. Paul says that needs to be repented of in order to actually become wise. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12. Notice again, it is a wrong assessment. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. He thinks he stands. He thinks he's mature. He thinks he's stronger than he is. And Paul says that attitude will lead to failure, spiritual failure. 
All that to say, growth into spiritual adulthood begins with a humble assessment of where one is at, recognizing the immaturities and the need for growth. Back to chapter 16. This leads to a fourth command, exhorting the church to grow up into maturity. The end of verse 13, be strong, be strong. So we'll call this one, be advancing in strength. Be advancing in strength. 2 Timothy 3.5 refers to those who hold to a form of godliness but have denied its power. So they have a form of godliness. They're in the church. They profess faith, but they have no strength. They have no power. Paul's commanding the church here, be strong. Have that power that should be associated with godly living. And in fact, this is actually a passive verb. So it reads this way, be being made strong be being made strong. So it's not something that we actively do ourselves, but it's something that we're responsible to put ourselves in a position to be, right? So put yourself in a position to be made strong. Again, how do you do that? He doesn't tell us right here because these are summaries. So let's go somewhere where he does tell us. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Turn over to Ephesians 6. How do we put ourselves in a position to be made strong? You know, there's no one who wants to be characterized in their Christian life as I'm weak and easily defeated. And yet, do we know how to be strong in the Christian life? Well, Paul tells us clearly right here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. There it is. There's the command again. Now, how do I do that? I want that. How do I get there? Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Verse 13, take up the full armor of God. All right, we're getting there. We're still not getting specific though. What does that mean practically? Verse 14, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. Now truth of scripture, that's coming later. This is truth as in truthfulness. It's an attitude, a characteristic of one's heart. A spiritual readiness, a sincerity to go into the battle, knowing what I'm getting into, a preparedness for the battle. Gird up your loins with sincerity, preparedness. I think that this speaks to the issue of when we have unbiblical expectations for what the Christian life will look like, thinking it's not really a cross to die on, It's not really a narrow road. It's not really that hard. And then life is hard and the Christian life is hard and we get defeated because we walked into it with unbiblical expectations. So Paul says, you put on this belt of truth. You sincerely get ready and commit yourself to the battle. Next piece of armor. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is a commitment and a striving to be righteous in one's life. Conform your life to God's righteousness. Holy living is the gateway to further strength. How do we know that? Because God won't bless disobedience. He will bless obedience. He's not going to bless this attitude. I'll obey as soon as I feel feel like it. I'll obey as soon as this circumstance gets better. I'll obey as soon as I can see this trial is going to work out the way I want it to. He's not going to bless that. You're going to stay weak. You're going to stay defeated until you move forward in faith in that moment, and then you'll experience the power to overcome that. Next piece of armor, verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's not evangelism. This is about your own sanctification. This is, this is recognizing I have peace with God. 
This is your functional gospel, how you preach to yourself when you're feeling condemned, guilty, when you confess sin and you recognize Christ paid for that. God's on my side. I'm not fighting to get him on my side. He's already on my side. So this is knowing that God is for me and therefore who can be against me. The next piece of armor in verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The Christian life is lived very simply, in the mind at least, in this arena right here. Believing God at his word or believing lies. That is where it comes down to. In in addition to all, take up the shield of faith. Will I believe God in the moment? Will I believe God in the moment of temptation? Will I believe God when my circumstances say this doesn't make sense? This isn't compatible with his providence or with his promises. Will I believe him then? What's that area in my life that's the most difficult for me to trust the Lord? Will I go to battle there? Will I trust him in that area? That's how we're going to be made strong in the Lord. Next piece of armor Paul mentions there in verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. I think this is referring to confidence of salvation. Confidence that you will be glorified. Confidence of of eternal life with Christ. This gives you motivation to risk your life for the cause, to make sacrifices for Christ. Because if you're not confidently assured of your future with Christ, you're not going to live wholeheartedly for him. So put on the helmet of salvation. Next, verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As we've already talked about, knowing the Word of God and knowing how to use the Word of God skillfully, that is a component of being strong. How do you do that? What's an example? Go to Matthew 4 and watch Jesus in the wilderness being tempted. He, he combated every lie of the evil one. And he went to the word of God. He had knowledge of the word of God and he used the word of God and he believed the word of God in the moment of temptation. That's the model. And now lastly, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the spirit, in the mind and will of the spirit, consistently, uh, consistently in harmony with the Holy Spirit. Prayer is another means of strengthening. If one is prayerless, they will be powerless. Just remember that. If you're prayerless, you will be powerless in the Christian life. Why? Again, God will not bless disobedience. Prayer is one of the means he uses to sanctify you, to align your will with his will and make you strong. And if you neglect that, he's not going to bless that. Now back to 1 Corinthians 16. I know we kind of went through that pretty quickly, but that was just to show you that there are passages that that show us how to be made strong, how to experience power in the Christian life over sin, over my weakness. Be advancing in supernatural strength. Then the final and, or the fifth and final command exhorting the church to grow up into maturity, verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. So we'll call this one, be abounding in your love. Be abounding in your love. What does that look like to be abounding in love? Well, there's no better treatment than this book a few chapters earlier, chapter 13. So let's go back to chapter 13. Paul devoted an entire chapter on love. And just for the few remaining minutes we have, we're going to consider 
what love is, what it looks like practically so we can know how to fulfill this command. Be abounding in your love. Chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love forbears. It doesn't give people what they deserve when they've wronged you. It has a non-retaliatory spirit, long-suffering spirit toward others. Love is kind. It actively gives people better than they deserve. Gentleness, kindness. Notice next in verse 4, love is not jealous. That's an intolerance of rivals, as we mentioned. We are jealous when we fear someone is threatening uh, something that we are or something we have. That's when we get jealous. And Paul says, love is not operative when we view other people as rivals or in competition with us. Next, love does not brag. It doesn't call attention to oneself. It doesn't bait people for compliments. It doesn't talk about how great it is. Love is not arrogant. So that's just the internal attitude of the bragger, the one who has that sense of superiority in his heart. I, I'm, I'm puffed up. I'm better than others. Next in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. That is, it doesn't act disgracefully, dishonorably. It doesn't shock. It doesn't confuse. It doesn't get attention for the wrong reasons. It considers the sensibilities of others and acts accordingly. Next in verse 5, love does not seek its own. Love is unselfish. It's not narcissistic. It's not self-absorbed. It's prepared to die to self, to give up rights, to serve the good of others. And this is a really difficult one. Love is not provoked. Love is not irritable. That's what he's saying there. What's irritability? The frequency of our impatience. <laughs> the frequency of our impatient responses toward people. And Paul says, if you're irritable, you're not operating in love. It's not provoked. That means that love can be inconvenienced, it can be ill-treated, and still not respond in a harsh way or an irritable way. Next, in verse 6, Paul says, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love forgives freely, quickly, before any, t- any time for bitterness to develop. Love forgives. It doesn't hold grudges. It doesn't keep a record with the intent of settling the score. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. What's this look like practically? You ever wanted or hoped someone to experience consequences for their sin? Wanted someone to fail? It's not loving. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, the act of it or the consequences of it. Love would never want or hope others to fall into sin or get what they have coming. Rather, Paul says, love rejoices with the truth. That's where it finds its pleasure, in the truth, what is good. It takes delight when righteousness flourishes and advances. It cares for the truth, loves the truth, upholds the truth, speaks the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things. It has a tenacity to it. Love enables you to live under difficulty with others, continually pouring yourself out for them. Love believes all things. That's not referring to believing everything everyone says. That's obviously not what it means. It means love is full of faith. Love believes the promises of God, believes the word of God. Love love has a strong faith that doesn't waver. It doesn't doubt God. It's not suspicious of God and his word. Why is that loving? Because you can come along and strengthen and encourage others. 
It's the difference between being around someone who's doubting and complaining and discontent and someone who's trusting the Lord. Just being around this person is edifying. That's why it's loving. Next, love hopes all things. What's that mean? It's optimistic. It's fully optimistic. It just keeps on hoping. Gives people every chance, every opportunity to do what's right. Love endures all things. It perseveres. It never gives up. Never quits. Never dies. Summarizing these last four verbs in the words of one author. Love bears what is unbearable. It believes what otherwise is unbelievable. It hopes in what otherwise is hopeless. And it endures when anything less than love would give up. So back to our passage. With that in mind of what love actually looks like practically. Let's read that passage again. Chapter 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Wow, what a standard. Let all that you do be done like like that. This is what it means to be spiritually mature. And he's calling this childish church to, to grow up. So we've seen five concluding commands exhorting the church to grow up into maturity. Be attentive in your sanctification, actively engaged, alert. Be anchored in the truth, developing deep convictions, unwavering. Be adult-like in your character as opposed to spiritual infants. Be advancing in strength. Don't live the Christian life characterized by weakness and defeat. Avail yourself of the power that is available in Christ. And be abounding in your love. That's what a mature church looks like. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and our time in your word. We ask that you would grant us hearts that would be hospitable to these truths, as we talked about earlier. That you would give us a humility and a teachability that we would welcome the invasion of these truths into our hearts especially in those areas that are hardest for us, the most costly, the ones that are hardest for us to trust you, would you give us the grace to believe in those areas and to obey in those areas? And give us hearts that would be more concerned with honoring you than holding on to cheap idols. And may we never settle for a condition of immaturity when you've called us and commanded us to be mature. So find us faithful to be consistently growing up into spiritual adulthood. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.